Amen. Well, good morning. Kurt Parker, it's good to be with all of you this morning. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. To worship together in singing and giving and time of the word. Right now, if you are new with us or if you have a little one through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, a grade appropriate service, you can dismiss them now to the foyer. Uh, follow Amy out there, the rest of the teachers, and they will be in their correct classes. Go down and pick them up when we're all done today. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's been a busy week this week of ministry. As Jim mentioned, he and I both, and along with a number of our folks, participated in a funeral service for Bill Reinhardt. Uh, Bill has suffered with uh, a number of health issues over the years. 86 years old, the Lord gave him a very full life, grateful for opportunity to participate and encourage the family. But also this week was a very busy week for ministry as we had our Berean exchange and our Berean giveaway. And my understanding is there was a line out front before we even opened. Hundreds of people came through yesterday and really Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, be careful to do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. And I think it was really a great opportunity for both of those things to be accomplished this week. As throughout the week, it was a, an opportunity for you, as you've given things throughout the course of this year, to minister to the needs of other Berean people. And where they had need, you provided. Where you had need, they provided. And then this last Saturday, from about 8.45 to about noon, our community was invited here, and it was an opportunity for us to meet their needs as well. So it was a great uh, chance to be Christ. They were witnessed to as they came through the door. They received uh, tracks in their bags as they went out the door. And so it was a great opportunity to use an event to make sure the gospel is spread. So if you were, if you, just real quickly, if you participated in any way, setting up, tearing down, you were here manning the store, whatever, would you stand up really quick? I know you probably don't want to do that and you like to be under the radar, but look around. There's a lot of people who put a lot of time in. We appreciate you so much. Uh, I don't see Sarah. Sarah Detweiler was one of those who helped to organize Amy. A number of those helped to organize and make sure that this happened. So thank you very much for being Christ to our community and representing um, him so well. It's time for us to be in the Word. I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week, because if you are, if it is, you are starving this morning. And the Lord has not intended for His Word to be treated that way, for you to come to a meal once a week. In fact, if, if uh, that is what you're doing, then for the most part as a pastor, I have failed in my number one job, which is to teach you to take up the sword for yourself. So if you have not been in the Word this week, let me encourage you, uh, change that pattern. It is a richness of blessing that is yours, plus the guidance of putting the Holy Standard in front of you every day and the changing of the thoughts that have to occur as we want to be uh, in uh, bearing spiritual fruit so we can use our spiritual gifts. Uh, out there on the welcome table, you'll find a trifold that's through the Word uh, on a yearly basis, and it's together in the Word, and that's where a number of us, a number of us use that trifold to take us through the Word. I do personally to take us through the Word each year, and so let me encourage you to do that, to be in the Word each day as the Lord designs for His Word, to be part of your daily life. Let the Word dwell in you richly, First, uh, Colossians three sixteen says, with all wisdom. And so in order for that to happen, that's got to be part of your habit. So change that habit if it hasn't been, and uh, get in the Word. We are in a continued study, if you're new with us this morning. We're in the middle of a section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that has to do with spiritual gifts. In particular, this is a very specific place, a very imperative place, instruction to the church, and he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the importance of love as the key ingredient in uh, for, I should say, for effective ministry for our church, not just in. It's not possible for us to do effective ministry if we understand these passages correctly without the spiritual fruit of love being the foundation for everything that we do. This is a continued study through First and Second Corinthians. We are in chapter 13, so I'd like you to turn there. We're going to pick up in verse 8 today. 
So look there in your copy of God's Word. You can find a copy of uh, what I'm reading uh, through New American Standard there around you in the seat in front of you. Uh, or just read what you have, what you study and memorize, and I'll give you verse cues and we can stay together. Verse 8 starts this way. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now as you read the passage, understand this is uh, one of those passages in the scripture that is a, of a more difficult nature. Uh, because we have a foundation and we understand the imperative nature of love, we understand the true key that rings through this. But as it is from time to time, you'll find uh, messages change, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. This is one of those that's instruction. It'll be doctrine. It'll be teaching. And so I'm going to switch hats. Sometimes it's more preaching. Sometimes it's more teaching. This is more teaching. And so it'll be an opportunity for you to understand a great passage that has a lot to do with what we understand about spiritual gifts. As Paul makes some very important and precise statements here concerning these gifts and, their, and their, uh, the, the temporary nature of them. Now, Paul's going to turn his attention here back to the use of spiritual gifts. For a section there from really verse 1 through verse 7, we saw the imperative nature of love and what love has to do with all the, all the ministry that has to go on. Because in the church there was some difficulty, wasn't there? Uh, they were struggling with how they're supposed to use their spiritual gifts. They were struggling with whether or not what they were seeing happen in the church was actually in reality spiritual. And so they were asking some questions, and they came to Paul, and really they said some came as uh, on a trip, some perhaps wrote a letter, but basically asking this, how can we tell if what's going on in the church during our services is spiritual? And so Paul began to focus on things happening in the church, conduct in the church particularly, as we picked up in, verse, in chapter 12. Or perhaps better, how can we tell if, the things, if things going on amongst us are really the work of the Holy Spirit? And so there was some question about what's going on. Is this the fruit of the Spirit working here? How, should, how can we know? And so what happened is early in, in chapter 12, we had some qualifiers. And we really broke Paul's, uh, really Paul's exhortation down into six basic breaks where Paul seems to make a break in his thought that became our headings. And the first one was really the test of the Spirit. That started in verse 1 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 12. And so Paul addresses uh, really what is the litmus test for whether or not this is uh, what's going on here is spiritual. And then Paul addressed the fact that they were regarding gifts with the wrong perspective. They'd elevated some gifts, particularly those that were showy, that were up front, to the most prominent position. And so he addresses a number of things as he works his way through those issues. And the second break we saw with Paul is the gifts of the Spirit. So he just kind of names off, not an exhaustive list, but certainly a list that helps us understand what's going on, starting in chapter 12, verse 4, all the way through verse 11. And then in spite of all the different gifts and different ministries and different outcomes, Paul moves really into the third break in his thoughts, and that's the unity of the Spirit. In spite of all that goes on and how varied it might be and how all the outcomes perhaps are different, starting in verse 12 of chapter 12 through verse 27, he shows that all of this is by the Holy Spirit. 
And then the fourth break we saw is that variety of the Spirit that goes on inside the work of Christ and that not all have these showy gifts. So to the Corinthian church, those that had the showy gifts, those were the spiritual ones. That's what you should have, or really you're not really ministering. And Paul just makes it clear, listen, not everybody has all these things. And in fact, as he's made it clear, the ones that you deem are less important. In fact, the ones that seem to be out of sight, those are the most important. And he uses the, the, the body itself as an illustration of how that's supposed to work. Now, they've done all those things, all those gifts, all that, to the exclusion then of the most important thing, which was love. In order for the gifts of the Spirit to function, they must be done through the fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit of the Spirit then is love. And so they are not trying to do the things through uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit. They're just trying to exercise the gifts of the Spirit outside what Paul says, is, and, and that is an impossibility, outside the fruit of the Spirit. And so what Paul does then is he takes them through, and this is our fifth break in this uh, time that we've spent in the Word uh, with Paul here, and that's the love of the Spirit really starting in chapter 12, verse 31, all the way through chapter 13, verse 13. He talks about the love of the Spirit and its preeminent importance as he defines love and shows them how love works. And actually, this is the, the regular reality of every believer. This is what it has to look like. And so at the end of this connecting chapter, which really should reset the priorities, as we talked about before, of the church, Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he comes back then to this emphasis on uh, making a big deal out of gifts, and he does a little comparison between gifts and love. So he's talked about love, how it's imperative that through, without the, the, spirit, the spiritual fruit of love, there's no way that any ministry is going to go on. Then he comes back and he's going to readdress this issue that, you know, it's still in their mind, these things that are most important. And so he's going to make some comparisons here between gifts and love. Love, obviously, as we've looked at, the preeminent thing in the church above all other things without which there's no ministry actually occurring. Uh, there may be physical work going on, but no real ministry. And then Paul gives this great overview. Now look, if you would, uh, back at chapter 13, verse 8. And just think about this overview. And here's what Paul really is saying as we read through that passage. Gifts are for a certain time. Love is forever. And so once again, he takes this, this idea that perhaps the gifts are the most important thing in the church, and he just kind of uh, cuts underneath all that foundation, just says, listen, gifts are for a certain time, love is forever. If you're going to be concerned about something, be concerned about the forever. They're concerned about what it looks like and how they're functioning. Paul says, listen, gifts are for a time. They are transitory. So fix yourself on the fruit of the Spirit. That's forever. And as we think about the Bema Seat Judgment that Jim just mentioned, and we've mentioned numerous times, it just really dovetails perfectly together. The spiritual house that you're building, the foundation which is Christ, has to be built with the fruit of the Spirit functioning as love in anything that you do. That's the kind of work that 1 Corinthians 3.13 talks about when it talks about the actions of love. And when you couple that with 1 Corinthians 13.1-3, which we read a number of weeks ago, in the church where without love you're really doing nothing and you are nothing and you'll have nothing to show for your efforts. I think it's very clear that Paul is is beginning to wrap this section up and really making the emphasis on, listen, this is the most important thing. Interact with people through love first. Now, why is that, Paul? Now look at verse 8. The reason why is love, let's go back there, love never fails. Love never fails. This puts Paul's main emphasis for the rest of the chapter, love never fails. That really is the key, as you think about these six verses, 
Uh, that is the key to understanding them. He uses this clause to emphasize what will happen to the rest of the spiritual gifts, particularly the ones they valued so highly, like the gift of languages or prophecy or knowledge. For all of those things are partial. All those things are about, and these are words Paul uses, childhood. They all belong to imperfection. But love is eternal. That's the whole message of the rest of the chapter. It's the key to everything we're going to read. Love never fails. Now, that fails word is present active indicative of the Greek word pipto. It has to do with becoming inadequate to a task. In other words, beginning to fail at something that used to be, you used to be able to do well at. Love is never inadequate to the task. Paul says love never fails to accomplish what it's supposed to do. From the positive, love will always be sufficient. Love never fails, or it will always be sufficient, which implies that everything else they thought was important in the church, all the spiritual gifts, are to a greater or less extent insufficient. So Paul uses this word now just so that you can get an idea of love never fails. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he talks about the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. He uses the same word. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. There's our word. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And the idea is this. In spite of all that God had done for the nation, uh, the adoption of sons, verse 4 says, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises and whose are the fathers. So they had the fathers of the church there from whom is Christ according to the flesh. The nation as a whole rejected Jesus. But because men reject what God has done, that doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. It's always sufficient. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, love is always sufficient or love never fails. So over and against the sufficiency of love, Paul then sets the insufficiency of gifts on which the Corinthians set so much store. Over against the permanence of love, Paul sets the impermanence of the other gifts. And it becomes another way for us to understand also, as we just kind of a side note, we'll look at this in a minute, uh, the understand the ceasing of the temporary sign gifts. Paul uses some great language here to help us understand when these things ended. Now, the language is important here, so we'll look at these part by part. So Paul starts at verse 8, he says, love never fails, and then he says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be, then he uses the word, done away. So in other words, keep in mind, love is permanent, prophecy isn't permanent. And it will be done away, this is a very important word, so I'm going to take my time with this so you can understand this. This is future passive indicative. It's, it's a more, more of a uh, a less common way to look at the verbs that are here, uh, uh, verbs that are in the New Testament. Future past indicative, kartargeo, and the meaning is clear. Here's the thing. Something's going to come along and cause the spiritual gift of prophecy to stop. As opposed to love, which is an eternal fruit of the Spirit and proper, the proper foundation for spiritual gifts, prophecy is not eternal. And Paul reveals by the Holy Spirit that there is coming a time in this future tense, so still to come as Paul is teaching the Corinthian church, and then the passive voice, which means that something's going to act on the subject to bring it to an end. Something will come and cause it to stop. Something's going to cause prophecy to end. And then the indicative mood just means this will be the actual reality of that future time period. And this is the same tense and voice and mood found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. This is a great illustration, I think, for us to understand how this is supposed to work. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And that, that verb, will be caught, is future passive indicative Greek verb, harpazo. Paul reveals here then, if you think about the same type of understanding, once again, not as common a verb form here, 
But we see it here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We see it, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13.8. We'll be caught, future passive indicative, in the future, separate from his visit for judgment, Jesus is going to come. The passive voice means that a force, and that's Jesus himself, will act on the subject. And those are the people who, what, haven't died yet when he comes. Okay, so he's going to come. He's going to come for the rapture. The indicative move just means that this will be the actual reality of that future time. So in verse 8, Paul says, if there are gifts of prophecy, he says, they will be done away. And prophecy, of course, is, is the passing on the direct words of God. We looked at that extensively as we went through uh, this in chapter 12. It literally means to foretell. It doesn't have to mean to foretell the future. It certainly did mean that in the first century and before. Uh, even if you look at the Old Testament prophets, the majority of what they said was a reiteration, and that's a great word to understand about prophecy. It was retelling what God had said. Some is new, uh, certainly, but it doesn't have to mean to foretell the future. It's to preach or tell forth or declare the scriptures. It's an act, the active gift, I think, presently is really the gift of reiteration. This is a spirit-empowered gift of speaking forth or proclaiming publicly the truths of God, a spirit-inspired speech, then, for edification, exhortation, consolation. This is obviously a speaking gift. It would appear to be a permanent edifying gift, and we're going to go over that again in just a minute so you can kind of keep this straight in your mind. In other words, it didn't end at the end of the apostolic age. And really that tips our hand a little bit about the time in the future when this gift will be done away with, when something's going to come and bring it to an end. But we'll see that later in our study. Now please skip to the last part of verse 8 and look at knowledge, if you would. The last part of verse 8. Paul says this, and I'm skipping here because it's the same verb construction as prophecy, and then we'll come back to the middle one, okay? So we're not just skipping over stuff. We'll come back. If there is knowledge, again, it will be done away. Now, knowledge, spiritual gift given to the believer so that they may understand the facts of the Scripture, the ability to know the truths of Scripture broadly and deeply. We talked about this, a comprehensive understanding of the Scriptures. It's a spiritual gift to benefit the church. All spiritual gifts are which would manifest itself in teaching and training and explaining and passing on those truths, the spiritual gift gives the ability to articulate that clearly. So there's a spiritual gift of knowledge. There's a spiritual gift of prophecy. Those are at work in the church. But Paul says, love is permanent, but knowledge, even as helpful as it is, and prophecy, even as helpful as that is, isn't permanent. And again, the meaning is fairly clear. Something's going to come along, and it's going to cause the spiritual gift of knowledge to stop. So again, it's the future, so still to come, as Paul is teaching the Corinthians. The voice is passive, which means something's going to come along. It's going to act on the subject to bring it to an end. Something will come and will cause it to stop. And then the mood is indicative. It just means that's the actual reality of that future time. So this is very important. Both of these, uh, both these spiritual gifts both have the exact same verb describing what's going to happen to them. Now look at the middle phrase of verse 8, and it's different, and I'm going to show you why that's important. Love is eternal. Prophecy and knowledge have an end coming up, but not yet. But, here it says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Now, that's important. If there are tongues, they will cease. Now, tongues, again, language or a dialect used by a particular group of people, distinct from that of other nations. This is the true spiritual gift of the ability to speak a known foreign language, unknown to the speaker, and known to the hearer. And, of course, then the corresponding gift is the other group of believers of translation without prior study. So there's some things going on here in the church were used in this first century, and one of those spiritual gifts is a spiritual gift of tongues. It was a true spiritual gift used for the benefit of the church. We're going to see some passages that illustrate it very clearly. 
But it says of that, it says it's going to cease. Pausantai. That's middle, future middle indicative. Now again, love is a permanent gift, but tongues are not permanent. But instead of something coming along, see, in the future, and putting an end to the spiritual gift of tongues, tongues, it says, ends on its own. It's in the future, so still to come, as Paul is teaching the Corinthians. And then the middle voice, which means the subject will bring an end to itself. So it's a reflexive idea. So it's going to come and bring an end to itself. There's going to come a time where tongues will stop on their own. That's a better way to look at it. Nothing's going to come along and stop tongues. Tongues, tongues will just stop on their own. And the mood is indicative. That just means it's going to be the actual reality of that future time. So love, Paul says, never fails. It's never going to be insufficient to the task. It's going to last for eternity. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Something's going to come along and bring them to an end. If there's tongues, they will cease. Tongues is going to end on its own. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Something's going to come along and bring it to a close. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, so love is eternal. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues are temporary. Now, there's an important uh, distinction here between prophecy and knowledge and tongues. What is it? Well, something's going to come along and bring an end to the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge. But tongues isn't in that same category. Tongue stops on its own. And Paul says it isn't waiting for something to come along and stop it. Now, none of the three gifts are eternal, but some continue until a certain point and are stopped, and one stops on its own. Now, that's, that's the basic foundation to Paul's, uh, Paul's information he's given to us here, and it's important. And that's why I told you that's, that's what we're going to talk about today, and it's a little bit different uh, feel of the message than typically we would have. Now, verse 9 says this. Look there, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And that is obviously speaking about spiritual gifts of, of knowledge and prophecy. And even as great as these gifts are, and Paul presents them in the superlative, remember in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says this, If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge. So we have the gift of prophecy, so we can speak uh, as God has told us to speak. We can speak it clearly, and, and we have all know all mysteries and all knowledge. That's just some knowledge, but all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. So when it comes right down to it, Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit here. In verse 9 he says, we know in part and prophesy in part. So even if we had all the knowledge, even if we had all mysteries and understand uh, uh, the gift of prophecy and remove mountains, Paul says it is a partial knowledge. And I don't think that's any news to a Bible teacher, is it? When you teach God's Word, when you give out the knowledge of God's Word, you understand that you only know in part. And it seems like the more we try to grasp at it and the more we gain ground, just that much more ground becomes visible to us out in the, out, out in the horizon. Would that be true, Bible teachers? If you teach a class, you understand. If you try to grasp a passage, then that knowledge of that passage is wonderful that you've got a hold of. And as you look out farther, you see there's much more there that you still need to struggle. And you feel like when you get to the end of your study that you really don't know anything after all. But that's really how it is. And Paul just makes it very clear. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Love is sufficient for all situations, so say it this way, but our knowledge and prophecy are only partially sufficient. And I don't think that's news. Let's briefly look at some illustrations of that very humbling statement. You can see that in Romans 11, 33. And when we studied Romans, we went into this in depth, but I'll just read it to you because it represents itself well. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
And then it says this, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Now, if his ways were searchable, completely searchable, and his, and his knowledge was fathomable, then it wouldn't say this, would it? But Paul says, in spite of all of his knowledge, and in spite of all his understanding about uh, election and all the things he just got through talking about, the Jewish nation and their rejection and their grafting back in, and all the things he understands about this wonderful nature of God and how he's working with men, he gets to the end and just says they're unsearchable and unfathomable. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who's become his counselor? And the rhetorical question is, no one. The answer is no one. So when it comes right down to it, see, the spiritual gift of knowledge, that's understanding the facts, and reiteration, that's prophecy, that's speaking forth the truths of God, are insufficient to capture God's judgments and his ways. That's his understanding here. Now, I love this one, Psalm 139, 1 through 6, again, illustrates this marvelous idea that it's only partial prophecy, it's only partial knowledge that we have. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. What is it, beloved? I cannot attain to it. So even with the understanding that the psalmist had, that the Lord has searched him and known him, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you understand my thoughts, and you're not, from afar off, you can understand what I'm thinking and what I'm going to do. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, you're intimately acquainted with all of my ways. There's nothing hidden from you, O Lord. Even before there's a word on my tongue, Lord, you know all that I'm going to say. So he's even articulated that very clear truth of the sovereignty of God in our life, You've enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too high. I cannot attain it. Even I can say it, but I can't understand all that's there. And even with all the gifts that work in the church, they only partially address all that could be known. This last one, Psalm 40, verse 5. That's a great illustration. The psalmist says, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts towards us, there is none to compare with you, and here it is, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. In other words, when we desire to catalog our knowledge of the attributes of God and teach them, they're only partial. After, when you struggle through all of that and you start to, to grasp the, the marvelous nature of God, it's only partial. They're insufficient to do the job. How many have written a statement of faith? You, you have a statement of faith, basically what you believe and teach. You've done that. You've worked through that. That's that's not an easy thing to do. You should apply yourself sometime to that, what you believe and teach. And I'll just tell you, as I tell people, my, mine's six pages long, single-spaced. It's about 11-point font, so it's getting pretty small. Now, and when I look at that, I just think, that isn't enough. That's, that's not all the stuff that I need to say. And, and I think that you understand. If you've done this, you understand. The, the more that you continue to grasp, the more, as Job says, we're just really grasping at the at just really the hem of the garment, aren't we? We haven't really grasped the full garment, so we have this partial understanding, see? We don't have all the information. And Paul says that very thing in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now he says, I know in part, see? And as we've observed, that's just obvious to all of us, isn't it? Now just think, as a footnote, just for a minute here, and I, I want you to shift your thoughts with me a little bit. I think it's important to point out that as Paul addresses the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge, that he doesn't mention tongues again until chapter 14. Why is that? 
And I think the important answer to that is, is that Paul just got through saying that it what? It stops on its own. Okay? So Paul says tongues is going to stop on its own. It isn't waiting for something to stop, but it just stops. And then, if you remember, when we taught through the temporary sign gifts, previously in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, we saw that the spiritual gift would be the ability to speak in a known foreign language, unknown to the speaker, known to the hearer, corresponding gift to another group of believers, it's translation. So we understand this, this spiritual gift. And when we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 10, and you can turn there if you would, you don't have to hold your finger here, but if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 12, 10 talks about tongues, and it says various kinds of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. And you can see that word there, various kinds. And in the Greek noun, that's just the word genos, which was just to indicate and verify that the gift wasn't restricted to just one language, but different offsprings of nations. That's the actual translation of it. The offsprings of nations, the language of nations, see, the spiritual gift could include any of those languages. In other words, the language of known people groups and different people groups. And we see that at Pentecost at work. So in other words, the language of known people. Now, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 tells us this. Now, as we think about this, this uh, spiritual gift of tongues, because Paul is addressing it, it is the main emphasis. So I'm not kind of bringing it up out of the blue. It is Paul's main emphasis as he works his way through chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, because it is the main spiritual gift that's being misused in the church of his time, and I would say it is probably the main spiritual gift being misused in a great majority of churches, particularly charismatic churches in our world today. And so we're going to just address it because Paul does, and he continues to bring it up, and we'll look and see what Paul says and just say what he says. Now, 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, we're going to look at this because this helps us categorize spiritual gifts. There's different places in the scriptures that give us lists of spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 and 11 helps us categorize those lists. Okay, so 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, Peter confirms that each believer has received a spiritual gift. This is not news to you. We've been over this. He confirms that spiritual gifting is something uh, which, uh, he, he confirms that spiritual gifting is for someone else. So, in other words, he says, As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in what? Serving one another. So your spiritual gift is given for the benefit of someone else. So as you're operating with the fruit of love, your spiritual gift benefits another person or people in the church. Just obvious, we've looked at that over and over again, and just 1 Peter just kind of confirms that for us. And really, as we think about the spiritual gifting for someone else, that really kind of falls in line with Paul's reproof in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, and we're going to see that in just a couple weeks. Paul says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, one who prophesies edifies the church. So, once again, spiritual gifting is made for and geared to benefit someone else. Paul says the tongues that they're using in the church are just edifying themselves. So Peter also confirms that to be a good steward, you have to manage your gift well by using it. Just like your body, just like your material goods, same thing here, same language. It all belongs to God. We're to use it to the fullest extent for his glory. And now we get the indication of two categories. And once again, 1 Peter 4, uh, 10 and 11 help us categorize spiritual gifts. Verse 11 says this. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And so we have speaking gifts indicated here, and those gifts in addition to tongues would include, uh, and I'll just give you kind of an overview. I won't even put it up here. You can copy some of these things down if you want. But speaking gifts, Paul says, are speaking gifts and they're serving gifts. Now, the speaking gifts would include, in addition to tongues, just obviously, 
Prophecy, this is from Romans 12, 6 in our study there, and you can go back and you can pick up that study online if you'd like to. Romans 12, 6 gives us as a speaking gift prophecy and teaching and exhorting. 1 Corinthians 12, and you can go back and look at those, uh, verses 8 through 10, as speaking gifts, gives us word of wisdom, word of knowledge, again, prophecy, and then various kinds of tongues, and another, the interpretation of tongues, all obviously speaking gifts. Again, we have from 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we have as a speaking gift, apostles, prophets, and teachers. So these are official uh, positions in the church, but they include the gifting of speaking. Ephesians 4, 11, we saw from that one, apostles again, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, again, offices in the church, which would be incorporating the spiritual gift, a speaking gift in their offices. So whoever speaks, so that's the first category. Whoever serves then is another one. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And then Peter really indicates some serving gifts, and those gifts would include uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, faith, Gifts of healing, effective miracles, distinguishing of spirits. These are all serving gifts. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians 12. In Romans 12, we saw serving. We saw giving. We saw leading. We saw mercy. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we see helps. We see administration. Ephesians 4, 11, we see the office of pastor as a serving, uh, serving the church. And so uh, Peter, just in general, gives us an idea that perhaps there's the breakup between, is, of spiritual gifts of those that speak and those that serve. Now, as we think about the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, typically these gifts can be further categorized as temporary gifts or sign gifts and permanent gifts. And so to put that together as we're kind of going through all these passages, as we focus on the cessation of the tongues in our passage this morning, a temporary or a sign gift is a gift that was given to confirm the testimony of the apostles and the prophets and is assigned to the Jews. These gifts are referred to as temporary because they were prevalent in the early church but ceased to be evident as the church became established. They're also referred to as sign gifts. They were visible signs that had been prophesied that would reveal the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, and they were visible verifications that attested to the salvation of the Gentiles and confirmed their acceptance in the church. Now, we've gone over this from time to time, so if you've been here, you're familiar with it, okay? So we look at them as temporary, and sign gifts. They're temporary because they were prevalent in the first century and ceased to be prevalent when that century came to a close at the end of the apostolic era. They're temporary in, in the fact that uh, they were given to confirm the testimony of the apostles and prophets and as a sign to the Jews. They were also referred to as sign gifts because they were visible signs that had been prophesied that would reveal the Jewish rejection of the Messiah they were visible verifications then that attested to the salvation of the Gentiles and confirmed their acceptance into the church. Now, temporary or signed gifts would have included healings and miracles, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Now, there are some that believe that the temporary or signed gifts are still active today. And now, in addition to what we're learning today about the gift of tongues from Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Two, two really important questions are, and I've given them to you in, in a number of different ways. I'll give them to you again. As we think about these temporary sign gifts and whether they're still active today, first question is this. Is it possible that the original reason for the temporary sign gifts no longer exists today? And I believe we can show from Scripture that the answer to that is yes, that the original reason for the temporary sign gifts no longer exists. And I think we can say from Scripture the answer to that is yes. Second question is this, can it be shown that the way the temporary sign gifts seem to function today 
does not match the way those gifts functioned in the first century church. And again, I think we can say from, the biblical, from biblical answers, the answer to that is yes. Now, let's look quickly, and we'll, we'll get, some, get our feet under us a little bit at the first two temporary gifts because they're closely connected with our topic today, and we just kind of take them all in. Once again, these are important things to grasp a hold of, okay? So, healings and miracles, the original use, the function of healings and miracles could, to confirm the gospel message. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, don't we? The writer says, How will we escape if we ne neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Verse 4, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So it verified the gospel. It was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard it from the Lord. So there's word of mouth, confirmation, and communication going on to the gospel. And then that was confirmed by various wonders and signs and miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit. So it confirmed the gospel message. Second way, original purpose, perhaps the original function, is to confirm the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by, what? Signs, wonders, and miracles. It also confirmed Paul. Romans 15, 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So Paul began his ministry. The Gentiles were converted. And then in verse 19, he says, in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of Christ. So it confirmed Paul, certainly confirmed his ministry among the Gentiles. We see that in Acts 4, 29 through 30, it confirms the message and the messenger. The disciples are praying. Here's what they say. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. After they were arrested and told they should not preach the gospel anymore, they go out, they thank the Lord for an opportunity to be persecuted, and they said then in their prayer, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So don't let us be shaken because they're threatening to throw us back in jail or perhaps kill us. Verse 30, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And so this message they're giving out, they want to be bold in it and they want to be, it to be confirmed that what they're doing is from the Lord, and it is through what? Your hand to heal, signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, we saw, we see in Mark 1.42, healing was instantaneous, a leopard immediately cleansed, uh, complete and permanent types of healing. Matthew 14.36, as many as touched Jesus' cloak were cured. Uh, he healed blindness, he healed perilous, he healed uh, other things. Uh, you know, Acts 3.7, Acts 8.5-7, Matthew 10.1. So Matthew 10, when actually Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. See? So healing then, as we look at this, as we look at the function and the use of healing and miracles, we see was an unconditional act. It didn't, it didn't depend on the faith of the one being healed. See? John 9, 25, we have the blind man that Jesus healed who was questioned by the Pharisees, and he says, you know, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Healing was done so the entire regions would be delivered from every type of sickness. So temporarily, where Jesus would walk and where the disciples would walk, all sickness would be cured. There would be a temporary time where there wasn't any sickness, no perilous, no disease, nothing going on in any of these places temporarily as the disciples and Jesus went through and later as the apostles did their ministry. Why? To verify the message, the gospel, to verify the messenger, to confirm what they were giving was truly from the Lord. And as you think about those gifts and their use, 
The original purpose is no longer required today. Since we have the completed scriptures, the message no longer needs to be validated from God. The office of the apostle has passed away, therefore those gifts are no longer required to attest to their authority. And the way the sign gifts were supposedly functioning uh, today doesn't match the way they functioned at the time of the apostles in the first century church. We don't have the unconditional, complete, permanent, instantaneous healing. We don't see blindness, perilous, uh, uh, um, other conditions being healed. We don't see entire cities. We don't see regions being delivered from sickness and disease. We certainly could use it, couldn't we? Except we just don't see that happening anymore because the Lord's not verifying uh, the gospel message because it's verified. He's not verifying the apostles because they don't exist anymore. He's not confirming the message in the messenger, although that could help. It's just the Lord's not doing it. We don't see that happening. We don't see entire cities and regions being delivered from sickness and disease. Now, God still heals today. He does that through answer prayer. He's certainly capable of doing it. He does it. But the, this temporary sign gift, we don't see active today. And we don't see it being used in the way that it was used in the first century. Now look at the other two, and it really ties us back to what we're talking about today, and that's the sign gifts of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And, uh, and once again, that pulls us back uh, towards the direction of our own uh, time in the Word. Now, original reason, usage of tongues, and, and the interpretation of tongues, again, as we saw before, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, that's a sign to unbelieving Jews. So tongues were given as a sign to the unbelieving Jews. I think we can just kind of confirm that over and over again through Scripture. Once again, as I go through these, I'm just hitting the high points. We've looked at them before. If you've been with us long enough, you have a base of understanding. If you're new, there's more to it. As I refer to studies back in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, you can go back there and you can listen and be filled in, and these gaps will fill in. But this is a sign to unbelieving Jews. Verse 21 says this, In the law it's written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I'll speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. That's quoting Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. So Paul is quoting a passage of prophecy that said tongues are going to come, and there's these strange languages that will speak to my people, and they still won't believe. They won't listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign. Okay, there you go. Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers but prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. And we're going to get into that passage more in depth in just a little bit. Now, number two, it attested to the salvation of the Gentiles. So tongues attested to salvation of the Gentiles, Acts eleven fifteen. As we see the passage, it says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, When they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now how did this little group of people who were evaluating the ministry that was going on in, with Peter and Paul in the Gentile world, how, will they, how were they able to verify that salvation came to the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles, what? Spoke with tongues. So it verified that the Gentiles were saved just like it was assigned to the unbelieving Jews. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, tongues were a known language, unknown to the speaker, known to the people group who used to spread the gospel. So in Acts 2, obviously we're talking about the time of Pentecost. Now, as the time is described to us, we see they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7. 
They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own language speaking the mighty deeds of God. So tongues are a known language, unknown to the speaker, known to the people group, and used to spread the gospel. Tongues were related and regulated between uh, in the church. We see in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, one or two, or at the most three, each in turn with interpretation. So Paul, as he talks in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, as we're going to get to the priorities of the Spirit here and what he allows to go on in the church, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren, as he evaluates their meeting together and what's going on in the church? Here's what he says. When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. So they're meeting, and then everybody's standing up, somebody's given a psalm, somebody's given a, a revelation, somebody's given a, you know, a teaching, and somebody's given an interpretation, and kind of going back and forth. Paul says this, let all things be done for edification. And then he explains what he means. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. So he just kind of gives the rules for that. Listen, nobody gets to stand up and just speak in a tongue, and nobody interprets. Paul says, this is how it's got to happen. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, or let him speak to himself and to God. But all things must be done, verse 40, properly and in an orderly manner. So as you think about the gifts, and you think about their use, and the original purpose, it's no longer required today. The purpose of tongues as a sign to the Jew to confirm the acceptance of the Gentiles into the church is no longer required today. The nation has rejected Christ with, with very few exceptions, a small remnant of Jews who are uh, completed Jews. So the purpose there is no longer needed. And since we have the completed scripture, which is sufficient, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, a word from God by way of a tongue and the interpretation of tongues is no longer needed. The revealing of God's word is closed. Now, beloved, it would save a lot of time in language school if missionaries who were going to South Sudan or, or to Uganda could move out to the mission field and just say, okay, Lord, I'm looking for the, the, the gift of the Spirit in tongues, and I'm going to give out the gospel. Do we see that happening? It is not happening, beloved. Why? Because tongues ceased on their own. And even the perfect examples of perhaps where they could be used to perhaps as closely as we could in today's era mirror what we saw in the first century we don't see okay so the way the sign gifts supposedly functioning today doesn't match the way they functioned at the time of the early church see what we see today is an uncontrolled unintelligible type of gibberish done by many all at the same time Again, manifesting that gift would be the pinnacle of spirituality. Again, exactly the opposite of what Paul says is important. In fact, the reason why he wrote this section was because that's what they were doing, and that's what we see today. As some who manifest the temporary gift today believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit must accompany by the speaking of tongues as a true sign of salvation, as we studied in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's clear from Scripture that each believer has the indwelling Spirit of God, receives the baptism of the Spirit, uh, once at the time of conversion 
Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, we saw that. It places the believer into the body of Christ. That's Romans 6, really 3 through 5. It involves the receiving of the Spirit as a seal and a promise. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 4, 13 to 14. So it's clear, see, that baptized means to dip or be immersed into. In this case, it means to be immersed into Christ, which literally means to be united with Christ. That's Paul's explanation in Romans 6, 3. There's never a command to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, never a command to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's never a command to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We've already looked at that, even at the beginning of this, path, at this time together, Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16, and what that means. What's also clear is that in the early church, not all Christians spoke in tongues, to be quite honest. Uh, Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12.29 and 30, he says, All are not apostles, are they? The answer is, no, they're not. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? They're not. Verse 30, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. All do not interpret, do they? No. So even in the first century, when the gift was active, particularly early in the first century, all people didn't do it. Only a few. See, And yet, the first century church was magnifying that gift, along with other showy gifts, as the pinnacle of spirituality. Exactly what goes on today, see? So as we think of those reasons, beloved, and we're out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up. As we think of those reasons, and we can add to that list, listen, what actually occurred in church history, which is the ceasing of the gift of tongues. And to that, if you just read through the, Paul's letters chronologically, and see the change in emphasis. And it, Paul doesn't mention tongues in subsequent letters, beloved, where it would have been appropriate to do so. And maybe we'll look at that study at another time. I think that by itself is a very important study. As you look at Paul's letters chronologically, as he wrote to the church, he doesn't mention to Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, or Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, or Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20, to go find a healer in the church and be healed. He doesn't mention it. Now, it would have been easy for him to do it, now, wouldn't it? Well, Timothy, because you're having trouble with your stomach, just find one of the healers in the church and have them lay hands on you, and you'll be healed. See? He, he doesn't and can't heal himself, even though he has a, a, a health problem that he's had for a long time. He doesn't mention the sign gifts, beloved. Listen, when he tells the church what to look for in a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, he doesn't say, you know... Make sure he shows forth the gift of an apostle. Now, he gave the, the, the qualifications for those who lead the church, and the gift of an apostle wasn't one of them. And he didn't say, make sure he has the gift of healing or tongues, because that'll be super helpful too. He gives the reasons why some should be excluded from, from leading the church and the reasons why some should be included, and sign gifts aren't included in any of that, Okay. He could have easily said that, but surprisingly, he did not. Now, as you can see, in addition to those reasons why we know the sign gifts, including tongues, ceased, then we have this very important passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, where we have tongues mentioned here as stopping on their own. The Lord didn't leave the gift to be stopped by something. It wasn't waiting for anything to stop it. It just ceased. And as we look through Paul's letters chronologically, we see that it ceased in the first century. And our other two gifts, partially sufficient knowledge and partially sufficient prophecy, 
are waiting for something to come and act on those spiritual gifts and bring them to an end. That's Paul's emphasis here. What is it? Look at verse 10. And this is where we close. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. There's our word, there's our verb again, kartargeo, same verb, used in the same way. Obviously, speaking of those two gifts, gonna, something's going to come along and bring them to a close. And then these two gifts are waiting for, according to Paul, the perfect to come. Ta telios, referring to an actual thing, a time period. And the fun part is really discovering what Paul intended. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. It can mean a full age. The perfect can mean a full age. It can be, it mean brought to its end, which goes really well with our two words. It can mean finished. It can mean, obviously mean wanting nothing necessary to completeness. That's uh, the perfect is wanting nothing necessary to completeness. So at the point where the perfect has come, that's the end of these partially partially used, partially beneficial gifts. So when is it? Well, here's a hint. Love never fails, so it's never going to fall short. It's eternal, okay? Spiritual gift of tongues stops on its own. And we can see, I think, make a very good case that it did stop. It stopped in the first century. We can certainly make a case for church history. We can make a church through uh, Paul's, what we see from Paul's gifting. We can make, certainly make a case for whether they're used the same way and, and the purposes are the same and all of that stuff, okay? So spiritual gifts of tongues stopped on its own, but the other two gifts are still going, aren't they? In fact, it was active just now and earlier today in Sunday school and before when you taught a class and when you had a Bible study and all those kinds of things, okay? So the perfect can't be then the finishing of the Bible, right? That can't be the perfect. When the perfect comes, then what's partial will be done away because we have the scripture, but we need the gifts of knowledge and wisdom and prophecy and all those kinds of things to understand it, right? And it can't be the coming of the Holy Spirit because obviously the Holy Spirit is what empowers these gifts to work. So if you're interested, come back next week and think about this a little bit and do some study. We're going to go over what Paul had in mind here as we think about when the perfect comes. All right? Let's be dismissed in prayer and we'll a few announcements and we'll I go on our way today. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. Last week, as we finished up uh, the imperative uh, nature of love and everything, Lord, we kind of got a grip uh, a little bit on what you really expect. As we think about church organization and, and all the things that are written in thousands of books about how the church is to grow and function correctly, uh, many of them skip over the most important thing that you said. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's self-sacrificing love, Father, I pray. As, uh, even as we get into this more technical section of the word and as uh, the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit had some very important things to say to us to help us understand these giftings and their importance as it compares to love, uh, we still want to understand that the most important thing we can do is to begin to act with love. And you've defined it for us so clearly. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant. It suffers long, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. And so, Father, even in my own life, as I teach those things, I find that they are the very things I'm, I, have been, I have put before me to, uh, to do and find myself even failing even after I preach to others. And so, Father, I just pray that you'll help us change bad habits. There are so many in our lives where we are functioning outside the parameters of love that you've defined for us. Help that to begin to define us and to become the men and women that we should be as we function in the church, 
the spiritual fruit of love as the foundation of everything that we do, that we might build on that spiritual foundation of Christ and our salvation with a house made of gold and silver and costly stone and not wood, hay, and straw. And Lord, as we move into this section, Lord, we understand that you've given it to us because you want us to know how the church is to function. It is your prerogative to tell us that and by your Holy Spirit to make it clear how the gifts are supposed to act and what are to continue and their importance. And so, Lord, help give us understanding, an understanding heart as we desire knowledge. And you tell us uh, to increase in knowledge, to add to those things that we have knowledge. And, Father, so that spiritual gift of knowledge is certainly there. And then you ask us to add to our knowledge so we might know and be able to rightly divide your word. It matters. Your church belongs to you. Your son is in charge of all things. And, Lord, we want to be glorifying to him in what we do and what we know and what we say. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we long to see and desire to serve. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.